worried about what's happening today in the Middle East, you know. And I'm so worried about the baggage retrieval system they've got at Heathrow. I'm so worried about the fashions today. I don't think they're good for your feet. And I'm so worried about the shows on TV that sometimes they want to repeat. I'm so worried about what's happening today, you know. And I'm worried about the baggage retrieval system they've got at Heathrow. I'm so worried about my hair falling out and the state of the world today. And I'm so worried about being so full of doubt about everything anyway. I'm so worried about modern technology. I'm so worried about all the things that they dump in the sea. I'm so worried about it, worried about it, worried, worried, worried. I'm so worried about everything that can go wrong. I'm so worried about where the people like this song. I'm so worried about this very next verse. It isn't the best that I've got And I'm so worried about Whether I should go on Or whether I should just stop I'm worried about Whether I ought to have stopped And I'm worried because It's the sort of thing I ought to know so worried about the baggage retrieval system they've got the Heathrow. I'm so worried about whether I should have stopped the end. I'm so worried that I'm driving everyone round the bend. I can relate to that song. I worry a lot, and then I worry about worrying, and I worry about whether I'm bothering people with my worrying, and you really have to hear the whole song to hear how annoying it is to be around someone who worries a lot. So thank you for bearing with me for all three minutes and 20 seconds of that very annoying song. It was published in 1980. It was put out in 1980 by Monty Python, and it's still very relevant. I'm still worried about the Middle East. I don't know about the baggage retrieval he system at Heathrow, if they figured that out, but everything, the fashions are still bad for our feet. I feel like we've all been worried for a long time. I am so happy to be back with you all today. I love it here. Uh, the last time I was here, I used an illustration about school uniforms to talk about how parents are subjected to a lot of rules and expectations. Um, we're now in the process of applying to middle schools for our oldest child. 
And that's the source of all kinds of worry and angst, not for the middle schooler, for me. Um, the kid's going to be fine. But there's a magnet program in Houston. And you're supposed to sign up for your top five choices of magnet schools. Some are for fine arts, and some are for languages, and some are for STEM, and it's all decided by lottery by a computer program. For some schools, we're entered into a double lottery by a computer program for the magnet option and a boundary option. If you get your first choice of magnet school, then all the other choices disappear, unless you're put on a wait list. There are scores and deadlines and something called a magnet matrix calculator. All of these words are coming out of my mouth. I don't know what any of them mean. Uh, and it might be all just a distraction to design to fool us into the fact that middle school won't be so horrible. It's still going to be horrible. Um, so we're just distracting ourselves from one worry with another worry, and we're really good at it. The worrying, not the school choosing. We don't know what we're doing. Maybe you worry too. It's likely that you do. Even if you're not quite at the level of the guy singing the song at the beginning, if you don't worry, I can probably work us all up into a lather in the next 30 minutes. <laughs> I got you covered. I'll worry for you if you're not worried. Um, I'm worried about you if you're not worrying, that maybe you're not paying attention. <laughs> and I'm guessing if I looked at your internet browser history for the past few weeks, I could probably find some level of underlying anxiety. Um, in mine, it's probably, um, how long is chicken good for in fridge? And <laughs> how do I know if my house smells? Um, yours are probably more glamorous than that, but that's okay, you get the point. I do know a few people who don't seem to worry at all. They don't seem to have care in the world. And I don't know how, who pays their electric bill. I'm worried for all of them, too. Uh, my youngest son, Ben, is seven. And even though I only oh, seven and a half. It's very important when you're seven. He's seven and a half. I know he worries about some things because he tells me that he worries about things. I'm always grateful when he tells me that he worries about things. But he doesn't seem to have any problem falling asleep at night. This is a foreign concept to the rest of us. And I realize now I've just jinxed myself into another seven and a half years of a kid not sleeping. I've been told recently that nobody believes in jinxing in the 21st century, but how do they know? So, <laughs> knock on wood right here. <laughs> but when Ben, when I turn out the lights, he rolls over and he falls asleep. It is the creepiest thing I've ever seen. So I told my husband a few years ago, I think, you know, you kind of forget things when you're a parent. I think we forgot to install a conscience in this one because he just rolls over and falls asleep. And he's the second kid, and you kind of forget to dot all the I's and cross all the T's with the second kid. I worried for a solid week after he was born that we spelled his name wrong on the birth certificate, Benjamin. Um, but what's wrong with him that he doesn't toss and turn every single night like the rest of us do? I'm sure he's mine, biologically speaking. He looks just like me. I watched him exit my body after worrying about him for nine months. But I was so tired around the time that he was born because his older brother never slept that I'm, I might have made a pact with the devil to get him to sleep. I don't remember. I was so tired. Uh, but he just doesn't seem to worry about anything at bedtime. And so my older son, Rowan, and I asked him about this a few weeks ago. We're like, how do, you, how do you do it? What's your secret? It's like a superpower. And he said, well, you close my eyes and I wait to fall asleep. <laughs> we looked at him like the Houston Zoo had just delivered him to our house from the exotic animals collection. Like, who, do who does that? And so the next night, I said, Ben, I really like how you told us about that, how you just close your eyes and you wait to fall asleep. He said, well, you can't think about anything. 
that'll just wake you up. He said, I don't know how it works, it just does. And so I don't know who needs ambient or mindfulness or breathing exercise. You just need to stop thinking. So that was easy. I'm just to take off my microphone and go home now. Just stop thinking. That's how you stop worrying. You might guess that I don't do a good job of turning off my brain at night or ever. When I was 13 years old, I had to have my wisdom teeth surgically removed, and it was the first time I'd ever been sedated. I wasn't exactly sedate, though. The medical staff couldn't get my heart rate to go under 100 beats per minute while I was unconscious. <laughs> so they worried about that, and they took me to all these places to get tests, and I had to go to cardiologists, and the doctor finally told my mother, her engine just seems to rev at a higher rate than the rest of ours. By contrast, my husband's pulse makes him appear to be barely alive on heart rate monitors, even in the face of stressful events. Between the two of us, we probably average out somewhere in the normal range. It might sound really nice, especially after that song, to, to, it sounds nice to be married to someone who's so calm and relaxed. And it has worked out for us for the most part. You know, we've celebrated 15 years of marriage this week. But as someone told me when we were first married, the first 100 years are the hardest. <laughs> I recently read Ann Tyler's latest novel, Clock Dance. In one of the last scenes, a widower tells the main character, my wife used to say that her idea of hell would be marrying Gandhi. Doing what? The main character asks. The widower answers, think about it. Gandhi was always the good one. Everyone else looked so rude and loud and self-centered by comparison. I believe my mother may have married Gandhi, the main character says. My father was so mild-mannered that he thought it was impolite to pick up a telephone in mid-ring. He always allowed the ring to finish before he answered. It was marry such a person or be such a person, I used to figure. You might want to rethink that, the widower tells her. Excuse me, she says. Those aren't your only two choices, you know. So when I talked to Dave Zoll about giving this talk, I told him that because Neil has this outward appearance of zen, a lot of people think that Neil is much calmer than I am. That doesn't make him a better person than you are, Carrie, is what Dave said to me. And I said, no, that doesn't make him a better person. There's lots of other things that make Neil a better person than I am. <laughs> but we all know, we laugh at this, we all know that laid back and zen are glorified in our society. And worked up has never been a phrase used to describe someone in a positive light. This phenomenon crosses gender lines. Women are high-strung. Men who experience anxiety are considered weak. Those of us who are anxious are described as jumpy, distressed, and troubled. And to be fair, anxiety and worry are not pleasant emotions. I'd love to be able to turn off my brain to go to sleep at night. It's not fun to be worried, and it's not fun to be around people who are worried. And I thought that I was a pretty good worrier before I had kids, but kids are like a booster pack for worrying. You know those card games like Trivial Pursuit or Exploding Kittens where you get the basic game and then you can buy the booster pack later and your options just explode. Like you have like multiples of new options to play this new game. The basic rules are the same, but your possibilities are just endless now with this booster pack. So that's how it was when I had kids. I have infinite possibilities of how to worry. Uh, when my sister-in-law had just had her first child, my nephew, I went to the grocery store with her and she said, having babies is so fun because you get to buy new things. You get pacifiers and bottles and baby shampoo. And for me, it's just opening up a whole new world of worrying. Um, I've heard this called hypomomdria instead of hypochondria, <laughs> that even just a little rash is suddenly like, all systems are shutting down. I know what this is. 
So several years ago, before our sleepy little Ben was born, um, Rowan, our oldest child, got sick when we were away from home. He was two years old, and what started out as a run-of-the-mill stomach bug turned serious in about 24 hours. We took him to the local emergency room, where we found out that his blood sugar was 11. I didn't know anything about blood sugar then, but I found out that's a dangerously low level. Um, he was dehydrated and unconscious. I was pregnant with Ben, so I couldn't be in the room when they x-rayed Rowan to rule out some things. And this was hands down the worst moment of my life. The person I loved most in the world was in danger in the worst possible way that I could imagine, and I couldn't help him. In what probably took an hour, but what felt like days to me, the emergency room staff decided to transfer him to a larger hospital. The larger hospital sent its own ambulance with its own crew, including a respiratory therapist. They don't tell you at the time, the respiratory therapist is in case he stopped breathing on the way to the other hospital, and they came and got us. We had to choose which parent got to go with Rowan in the ambulance. There wouldn't be room for more than one of us. Uh, Mia let me decide, and I rode with him. Um, side note, Gandhi here um, went to the drive-thru at McDonald's with my parents <laughs> so, while I was in the ambulance with Rowan, so he was, he was taking care of business. He was fine. Um, <laughs> I don't think I slept much in the days that followed, and I know I wasn't properly caring for myself. I slept in the bed with Rowan, so pregnant me in this pediatric hospital bed with little Rowan with tubes and wires everywhere. I sang this little light of mine to him over and over and over again. And when the chief of the pediatric ICU came by to update us on the tests that they were doing and the treatments they had planned, he asked me, do you have any questions? And I said, yes. Um, can you tell me that he's going to be okay? And he said, no, I, I can't tell you that. So uh, he is okay. He's fine now. But my anxiety was serving a purpose that week, and it kept me glued to my child's side. But it didn't come without a cost. Um, a few nights into our stay, I was hospitalized for dehydration and exhaustion myself. I worried myself into a hospital bed. This was not living my best life now. Rowan and I were eventually released, and while he didn't smile for an entire month after that horrible week, he did make a full recovery. But I tell you that story to let you know that I don't think anxiety is something to be admired or achieved even though sometimes we're proud of our own anxiety. Our cynicism that makes us less naive or less gullible. Uh, we were preparing for Hurricane Harvey in Houston last year, and I could easily de determine the like, psychological developmental differences between my two kids. The six-year-old at the time thought this would be a great adventure. We're going to have a survival story at the end of this. But the nine-year-old was really worried about his safety and his Legos and everything else. And I think we all think of, of a lack of anxiety as being like the six-year-old, naive and unprepared and maybe foolish. We're proud of our anxious quirks, and we define ourselves by our fears. And yet we still treat calm and zen as desirable. I'm not sure that should always be the case. Right before we had Rowan picking a pediatrician, and our friends told us we should go to her pediatrician because he's so laid back. <laughs> she told me this multiple times as a selling point. He's just so laid back. And I was like, I want one who's dialed in a little bit. <laughs> I want one who knows what he's doing. So even if that means someone's wound a little bit tightly, I don't always want someone who's laid back. Um, and it's just one of the many ways that our secular society values calmness. I'm sure you've seen those signs that say, keep calm and carry on. They have a dis distinctive font and a crown in the middle. 
Um, according to the Wikipedia, these motivational posters were produced by the British government in 1939 in preparation for World War II. I think I knew that much, but what I didn't know, uh, and I knew that the poster was intended to raise the morale of the British public, keep calm and carry on. Um, and they were threatened with widely predicted mass air attacks on major cities. So almost two and a half million copies of this poster were printed, and I didn't know that the, po the poster was hardly ever publicly displayed. And it was little known until a copy was discovered at a bookstore in the year 2000. And it's been reissued since then by a number of private companies. But I thought about that. They have these two and a half million posters in someone's basement. And maybe even the British, with their stiff upper lips, knew that it was too much to ask for people to keep calm in the face of certain danger. I mean, ration sugar and use blackout curtains, sure, but we can't ask them to not have anxiety, too, on top of everything else. So I'm sure you've seen the spin-off posters, keep calm, I'm a nurse, keep calm and do yoga. My favorite of these is, I can't keep calm, I have anxiety. <laughs> or what about that song from the 80s? Don't worry, be happy. The lyrics are ridiculous, and I looked up the video when I was getting ready for this talk. It's Bobby McFerrin who sings the song, Robin Williams, and the guy who plays Mr. Noodle on the Elmo videos. I don't know how he got in there, but I think they all needed drug money at the same time, and that's how they ended up being so calm. I don't know. But that injunction to don't worry, be happy, it didn't work for me in the 1980s, and it doesn't work for me now. Um, and as much, So that's all secular, don't worry, be happy. And sometimes the church likes to distinguish itself from secular culture, but I'm afraid modern Christianity hasn't done much for us here either. Um, I'm so glad Dr. Paulson spoke about the church yesterday. Um, there are a lot of you from the Bible Belt here. Dr. Paulson and I both hail from the great state of Wisconsin. Um, I don't know what that says about our theological training or anything, but I really liked what he had to say, that the church has always been a little bit of a mess. And that's comforting to those of us who are worried about the church now. This is nothing new. And it always reminds me of a hymn from the 1982 hymnal that's in your pews, The Church is One Foundation. I think other denominations sing this too. The Church is One Foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. And we, always, we sing this a lot at our church at Palmer in Houston. I don't know why, but it's good because we always need to, a reminder that Jesus is the foundation of the church. But this hymn is tricky. It's tricky because it's got this nice upbeat melody and it's like those Mexican love songs where it sounds really upbeat with a mariachi band but then you find out the guy's like talking about his heart being ripped out and stomped on the ground in the dirt even though it's got this really catchy music. That's the church's one foundation because in the third or fourth verse, though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? Translation, the church has always been a dumpster fire rolling downhill. And we don't know what to do with our anxiety about that. So if the hymnal doesn't help, you might look in the prayer book, right? The Book of Common Prayer is our Bible in the Episcopal Church. The last time I was here, I read a collect from the Book of Common Prayer. There's a section of collects or prayers in the, in, the, in the prayer book for certain events and certain problems that people have but there's no collect in that collect section for people experiencing anxiety. There are prayers for peace. There are prayers for guidance. There are prayers for quiet confidence. I like that one, not loud confidence. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see your loud confidence. Shut it down. Um, there, there are collects for protection. In the 1928 prayer book, there's a, prayer for, there's a collect for calamity. 
but there's nothing about anxiety. So I mentioned this to my husband yesterday, and he made the mistake of playing the Will Actually card on me at lunch. And he did some kind of prayer book wizardry, I don't know. Um, and he found that the collect in year A, proper 20, on the Sunday closest to September 21st, I don't know how regular people find that, but it mentions anxiety, and it asks God to help us love all things heavenly. So if you really know the prayer book and you have a master's level in understanding the Book of Common Prayer, you're kind of a little better off than the rest of us, but we're still kind of left with this injunction of, don't worry, be happy. Um, it reminds me of, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Cars, Disney, Pixar, um, had this great movie several years ago about Lightning McQueen, this race car, and he has a friend named Tow Mater, it's a tow truck. And Tow Mater's always getting himself in trouble, and the sheriff comes up to him in one scene and says, Mater, what did I tell you about that? And he said, to not to. And that's why that's our favorite scene, to not to. And that's what we're told about anxiety by the church, to not to. Just don't do it. So I struggle with this. And when I was a little girl, I even struggled with this. And my parents, I'm the third of four kids, so they were tired by the time I came along. Uh, they told me, don't worry, Jesus is always with you. I was not that kid that could fall asleep on a dime like Ben. I was up and down the stairs a million times a night. They just told me that Jesus is always with you and he could show up at any time. Always with me. I'm an introvert with three siblings. I don't want anyone else with me, much less a grown bearded man that I've only known from stories. I don't want to just show up. They meant this to be comforting, but I was terrified. And what magnified this was this artwork they put in my room. They are the best. They are the, the best well-meaning people, but they put this piece of art in my room, and it showed a picture of Jesus, and it looked like a photograph to my young eyes. I know it's not a photograph, it's Jesus, but Jesus is walking on the water, and his hands are outstretched like this, and it's like backlit from behind, and he looks like Beyonce coming on stage, and he is here for it, and here for what? I never figured out, but uh, kind of like in The Princess Bride, when the Dread Pirate Roberts comes with Andre the Giant, I am Dread Pirate Roberts. That was Jesus on the water, and that was supposed to be comforting to me. I kept that picture of Beyonce Jesus for a long time. I took it with me from home to my college apartment to law school, and I think I was a little bit superstitious about throwing it away, and throwing away my childhood anxiety felt like some kind of betrayal. So I met my husband, who is an Episcopal priest, and he was horrified that I carted it around the country every time we moved. And I was like, what do you have against Jesus? <laughs> he said, not Jesus, that Jesus. <laughs> so ironically, Beyonce Jesus is no longer with us. Uh, he was damaged in one of our moves by water. I don't know. <laughs> it really did happen. I'm not saying that, that anybody did it on purpose, but follow my eyes. My parents, of course, were well-meaning. They really meant that to be a comforting thing, um, both, with both with the picture and telling me that Jesus was with me all the time. But I feel like there are more toxic ways in which we as Christians treat people who have anxiety. These used to be on cross-stitch samplers or page-a-day calendars. But these days, they seem to be summed up in a 140-character or less tweet. Their basic message is, if you worry, you're not trusting God enough. If you worry, you're not a good Christian. If you worry, you are not worthy. What they seem to be saying is, don't worry, be holy. 
I'll confess I'm predisposed against Twitter anyway. I don't like it. I don't understand it. I don't have a Twitter account. I started one for our dog once, and she did a terrible job of curating her social media presence, and then we both forgot the password. So I'm not really well-versed in Twitter. But these little jabs at anxious people from tweeters who are trying to represent Jesus, this feels like burdening the already burdened. I'm burdened already, and it feels like it's burdening me more. Where does it come from? We have Jesus telling his disciples about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. We all know that. Don't worry about you. God provides for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough worry of its own. Um, what? what? What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> so this is easy enough to, for us to cast this aside as Jesus and his disciples living in simpler times. They had lilies of birds. There was no IRS. There was no middle school magnet program for them to worry about or tire rotation. But they did have the Romans and leprosy and crucifixion, so I can't wash away this passage altogether. (laughs) And it does let us know that anxiety is not something new. It has been around since the beginning of time. And I note that Jesus told them not to worry and even called them ye of little faith. Ouch, (laughs) ouch. But he didn't condemn them for this. And if you keep reading, you get to the part right after those lovely lilies where Jesus tells his disciples to mind their own business. In the very next verse in Matthew's gospel, he tells his followers, do not judge or you too will be judged. So when our youngest child, the sleeper, little Ben, was in preschool, his teachers had a great way of getting kids to keep their hands to themselves at circle time. Every preschool has circle time, circle up. And those of us who are old enough remember sitting Indian style in the early grades, legs crossed on the floor, they don't say that anymore. They say crisscross applesauce. So those of us with young kids have all heard crisscross applesauce. It means the same thing. Sit on the floor, legs crossed. Ben's teacher took it a step further. She said crisscross applesauce, spoons in your bowl. And all the kids knew that this meant keep your hands in your own lap. Um, so we say that a lot at our house, spoons in your bowl. Keep your spoons in your own bowls. Keep, stay in your lane. And that's what I want to say to these tweets of the anxiety judgers. Keep your spoons in your own bowls. Don't you worry so much about my worrying. And I do think that we use others' sins or weaknesses as a distraction from our own sins and weaknesses. We know we have our own junk, but we're happy to point out the speck of dust in our brother's eye. It's fun, and it's satisfying. It's so satisfying to figure out other people's problems and tell them not to worry about it. It feels so good. But it distracts us from our own junk. And by extension, I feel like it distracts us from our own salvation, from our own garbage. Those anxiety-shaming tweets aren't particularly helpful in the same way that highlighting anyone else's garbage isn't particularly helpful. There's another account in the Gospels which always comes to my mind when I'm thinking about anxiety. It's not just the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, but it's when Jesus fell asleep on the boat during the storm. Who can sleep on a boat anyway? Neil can, my husband can, Gandhi can, and Jesus, apparently. But I don't know anyone else who can sleep on a rocking boat. Uh, The storm rises up and they freak out. And they wake him up, and he's like, I got this. And then he chides them for worrying. This one really got to me. I mean, everything in their life experience so far has taught them that electrical storms plus water equal death. So why wouldn't they be worried about this? Why was he so angry at them? This reminds me a little bit of when my brother and I were little. We grew up in um, rural Wisconsin. My parents built us a tree fort in the woods, 
and fort is a very generous term for this contraption. It was basically like a piece of plywood wedged between trees. I don't know how they attached it there. And then um, a two by four nailed between the trees is like a railing. So OSHA would never have approved this situation. But um, my brother one day kind of slipped off the plywood and he was hanging onto the railing and he's hanging on for dear life and he's crying and he's sweating. And I, he gave me permission to tell this story because it doesn't paint him in a very attractive light. But he was just so scared. So I ran down the hill and I told my mom, Paul's stuck, he's going to fall. So she ran up and she looked at him and his feet were about this far from the ground. <laughs> she was like, Paul, just let go. You're going to be fine. This emergency was not such an emergency. And so when I think about Jesus in the boat, I think maybe Jesus was like my mom. Like, guys, this isn't that big of a storm. And we're basically on a glorified lake. Like, if we tipped over, you could walk home. You'll be fine. Get it together. This is embarrassing. <laughs> but still, Jesus seemed really angry when they woke, up, woke him up. Jesus, Jesus was like, how, how dare you? How dare you wake me up? When people use these passages to give well-meaning but ill-informed Ill advice about don't worry, be holy, it is when I feel like I least belong at the Lord's table. If I can't get it together enough not to worry, then how can I call myself a Christian? It is worth noting that it's not the virgin birth or the resurrection or the feeding of the 5,000 or the healing miracles that have me doubting. It is the very fact of my anxiety that there is something wrong with me that makes me doubt that I will ever fit. I can try all day to keep calm and carry on, but the more I'm told to settle down, the less I seem to be able to. Neither secular nor spiritual Xanax seem to make my engine rev at a lower rate. There's also a part of Christianity that makes me nervous, where people tell me that I'm not worried enough or not worried about the right things to consider myself a Christian. How could you vote in that way, or not donate money to this cause, or not do all the things and still call yourself a Christian? And this exhausts me as much as the admonitions not to worry. And then there are the admonitions that if we define ourselves too much by these worries, or affiliations, or earthly things, then how can we call ourselves Christians? And I get really nervous every time we mere mortals start drawing lines in the sand between the sheep and the goats. The phrase, how can you call yourself a Christian if, sends a chill down my spine. But something always brings me back in. It's almost like Jesus won't give up on me, even when I've given up on myself. Something reminds me that the anxiety I'm feeling is a very loud distraction from the salvation I've already received, and I haven't even had to worry about it. Simeon Zoll spoke at the Mockingbird Conference last year, Dave's brother, and he said, it is only in our sickness that we recognize the physician. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of um, Justin Welby's daughter. Justin Welby's the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his daughter has been very public about her struggle with mental illness, in particular with depression. But I think this holds true of anxiety as well, and how the church has treated depression and anxiety and a lot of mental illness. And she said, some Christians will say, you're not depressed. Then they insinuate or they state directly that you don't have enough faith or that depression is not biblical because the Holy Spirit gives us joy or that you haven't experienced the love of God. To which I just say, this is Catherine Welby saying, I experienced the love of God more during my darkest period than, than at any other point in my life. 
her bravery in sharing the stories of her depression and how she experienced the love of God is pure grace in the face of the law of thou shalt not have feelings and still call thyself a Christian. I'm so grateful for her Christian witness in the face of attempts to shame her for her illness. A lot of my anxiety in any given week, up to 80 to 90% of my anxiety has to do with missing objects. I can't tell you how many times I've lost things in my own purse. You can see why if you look at my purse, it's a, it's a mess. Um, and in my own house, I lose things all the time. And it gives me so much anxiety when I lose things. And we hear in the gospel how Jesus is the shepherd who would do anything to find that one lost sheep. We hear that God is like the widow with the missing coin, turning her household upside down for one precious item. When I hear those parables, I'm reminded that God is doing the worrying for me and that he worries over my soul, maybe almost as much as I worry about my missing keys. Um, and his searching for us is a sign for, of his love for us. And then the other thing that always brings me back in is the night before the crucifixion. And this is the reason that I will always go to Holy Week services, even if I feel like I don't have time. Jesus went to Gethsemane with his disciples, and he prayed while they slept. We sing at our, a hymn at our church during Holy Week, Go to dark Gethsemane, ye that feel the tempter's power, your Redeemer's conflict see. The hymn invites us to witness his anguish in the garden. Jesus asked his friends to stay awake with him that night, and apparently they weren't such good warriors after all because they fell asleep three times. Um, <laughs> and Luke's, but Luke's gospel tells us that while he prayed, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke's gospel tells us that he was in agony, in anguish. That night in Gethsemane is where Jesus becomes most human to me, and it is right before his body is broken. And he is divine at the same time, taking all of the worry and the sin of the whole world and dying for it. I recently read the book, Because We Are Bad, OCD and a Girl Lost in Thought by Lily Bailey. It's a memoir of her mental illness, and she's a young woman who lives in Great Britain. She describes her childhood and adolescence haunted by obsessive compulsive disorder. She has an extreme version of obsessive compulsive disorder where she hears voices that tell her to do certain things. Um, she barely sleeps at night because these compulsions are so strong. And she's, her intrusive thoughts focus on keeping other people safe. She's rarely, if, if ever, worried about her own well-being, but the people that she loves. And she does find a compassionate therapist who offers herself, this therapist offers herself as a stand-in um, for Lily's imagined alter ego, these voices that urge her to complete certain rituals. The therapist says, can I be a replacement for that voice who prods you? And Lily, she says to Lily, couldn't I be there instead? And Lily says, I could never put you in my head. It's a terrible place for anyone to be, and I don't want you to be there. This has echoes of Anne Lamott. My mind is a neighborhood I try not to go into alone. <laughs> we don't have to go there alone, though. God sent Jesus to worry with us and to sit with us through our worry. And as my parents wanted to remind me so many years ago, he's always with us and not in that scary way that I imagined. And so how, how can I call myself a Christian even when I worry? How can I call myself a Christian when I don't worry about the right things? Jesus has already claimed me for his own, and I don't need to worry about drawing that line in the sand, separating from the, the sheep from the goats. It's not my job, and it's not Twitter's job either. We don't have to be the strong, solid rock on which the church is founded. 
God has that covered. He is the shepherd seeking the lost lamb and the widow looking for the lost coin. He's doing all of that for us. And he does this when we're anxious and even when we fall asleep on the job. This doesn't make me worry any less, I'm sorry to say, but it does take some of the worry about my own salvation and my own belonging in a community of faith away from me. This isn't to say that we shouldn't take all the steps that are available to us for mental health. Exercise, sleep, therapy, medication. These are all, in my mind, God-given gifts for us to use as part of our care of creation, God's creation in us. These are wonderful tools, but there always seem to be reminders that I am hardwired to worry. My engine revs at a higher rate. But I try not to let that anxiety that remains and the voices who would tell me that I'm not good enough because of it I try not to let those things distract me from the wide, wide love of Jesus. Uh, my family uses hymns a lot, in, um, sometimes in funny ways, at our house. I think maybe, I think this is what people imagine all clergy families do, but I think we're a little weird. Um, when we're stuck in traffic, I might sing, Go Down Moses. <laughs> let thy people go and so and then when someone gets the stomach flu i start to sing um i start to sing the one that they sang when the titanic was sinking the you know that not abide with me the one about uh, you know it nearer my god to thee i start singing that as soon as someone throws up because it feels like the titanic is sinking um, I started to sing I'll Fly Away the other night when my second grader was doing his homework. I don't think he knew what I was doing, but I was dreaming of one glad morning when I can fly away from all of that. Um, there's a hymn that my husband and I turn to often in an unironic, unfunny way. Um, when there is national tragedy or when we're anxious about things. And this started a few years ago when we heard it for the first, we heard it in a public way in the first, for the first time. It was written by Edward Mote in 1834 in England. Uh, he was not born into a Christian family. His, um, his parents were barkeepers, and then he was a cabinet maker, and then he became a Baptist minister in England. And he was so beloved by his church that they offered him, um, he off they offered him the chapel when he retired. And he said, I do not want the chapel, I only want the pulpit, and when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that. Um, so I love this, I love this hymn, and I love this man. Um, we heard this hymn, Neil and I heard this hymn, when we watched a videotaped service after the shooting at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, that shooting killed nine congregants, and it was revealed to be a racially motivated crime. And we had no words for each other. We had no words that would make us feel better about any of this. Um, but someone took a video of this service where the entire community came together and sang this hymn. It's not in the hymnal, but we'll forgive it for that. It's okay. Um, but John Zoll was at the service, and he's in the video singing the song. <clears throat> and I'm going to sing just a little bit of it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. 
When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood sustain me in the raging flood. When all supports are washed away, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Clothed in his righteousness alone, redeemed to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the one we turn to over and over again. When darkness veils his lovely face, that darkness is the anxiety and the depression and all the worldly noise that we hear. And that sinking sand is what makes me anxious. And we live in a world of sinking sand. The hymn's words don't promise a rosy life here on earth without storms and trials. That's all sinking sand. But we also live with the knowledge and the promise that Jesus' blood and righteousness is the solid rock on which we stand. Amen.